My name is Colton. I'll be reading our passage of scripture this morning. It's going to be Genesis 12, uh, specifically verses 11 and 13. It's going to be on page 8 of your pew Bible. It'll be on the screen as well. Genesis 12, starting in verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. We have paper in our bulletins for drawing pictures, um, especially for the children who are in the sanctuary elementary age who aren't normally with us, but you're, you're here all summer long and we're glad that you're here. Um, this morning we're going to be talking about fear. Fear can be a very powerful emotion, so maybe you'd want to draw a picture of something that makes people afraid. Um, I can tell you that I am so, so scared of flying insects. I don't know why, but wasps and bees are very, very scary to me. So if that would be enjoyable to you to draw your pastor, one of your pastors afraid of insects, you can draw that. But fear can make us do very erratic things, things that we never expected we would do. Many years ago, it happened to a man named Abram. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come here this morning with, as we sang earlier, failures and mistakes. But we also come with the hope, with the expectation, with the belief, with the conviction that they're not wasted in you. Lord, we lay before you this morning all the fears, all the worries, all the anxieties, and and we bring them now. And, and, And even we ask that you would expose them, even the ones we're not aware of, so that we might be free, so that you might break chains. We pray that you'd do this in the power of the gospel as we study this passage in Christ's name. Amen. The saddest song I've ever heard is The Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. Now, you may not agree with me that the saddest song you've ever heard, but if you've heard it, you would know it's a sad song. The story begins, or the song begins with this haunting guitar riff, and then the lyrics that follow, at least to me, are even more haunting. Chapin sings... My child arrived the other day. He came to the world in the usual day way. There were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he said, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know, I'm going to be like you. It's not too sad yet. Then comes the chorus, and then the second verse, my son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, dad, come on, let's play. 
can you teach me to throw? I said, and not today. I got a lot to do. And he said, that's okay. And he, he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. And he said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah. You know I'm going to be like him. If you know the rest of the song, you know, you know that boy turns out like his father, too busy. And I've often wondered why that song hits us so deeply. Surely many women find the song sad, but it hits men hard. Why? Perhaps because of the collision of deep fears. Fears deep within the human heart, especially I would say the hearts of men. There are fears about protecting and providing on the one hand, and there are on the other hand fears about the legacy of our actions. And I don't know how you draw those fears on a piece of paper. Fears about protecting and providing, fears about the legacy of our actions. It's easier to draw a bee or a wasp, but these are the deep fears. And like Harry Chapin's song, this passage that we have before us in Genesis, it cuts deep. It touches on fears about protecting and providing on the one hand, and on the other hand, fears about the legacy of our actions. You know this already, but I'll just say it out loud. Fear can make people do crazy, erratic things, sometimes even sinful things, things they never imagined they'd do. If you've seen someone drowning, seen on TV, maybe even in person, maybe you've been a part of rescuing someone, you know, you know that in a drowning scenario, it, 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 there's, this, there's this panic, and, it, it is, and it's and it's thick, and it's erratic, and, and, it, and it's to such an extent they say that a, a man drowning might even plunge underwater the person who's trying to save them. In a way, in this passage, we might say Abram is drowning. He's afraid. Who's he going to plunge underwater? Stay afloat. No, well, he's not drowning per se. He's actually starving. Look with me at Genesis 12, 10. This is just before where Colton began reading. We're going to read it through the morning, all of 10 through 20, but we begin here in verse 10. We have what I call the inciting incident of the passage. It's the event that puts all the other events in motion. So if you have a Bible, just leave it open. Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. This is strange, is it not? Remember, God called Abram out of his pagan moon worshiping. This is Genesis 11, 26-ish through 32, and then you can read about in Joshua 24. God saved him, provided for him, blessed him. God promised to show him a land. And then last week we saw in Genesis 12, 4 through 9, life in the land was good. Abram built altars and called out to God, God the God who hears and responds 
That's what we've seen the last few weeks. In summary, Abram starts out wayward, then God rescues him. Abram responds in faith, and God makes blessings abound. But wait, now the land of promise, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of bounty and blessings has a famine? Wait a minute. The grass that looks so greener just a moment ago has turned brown and died. In, in the famine, the crops don't come. The livestock starts to die among people, older men and women, and the youngest of children die first. Businessmen default on their loans because they have no crops to sell. Abram had moved, he had moved from Ur in Mesopotamia, what we would call today the Fertile Crescent. Abram knew what prosperity tasted like, and this sandy desert land of promise was not it. John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath, tells this fictional story of the Jode family, but it's also the real story, the actual story of an actual famine in America's Midwest. It's a time when the breadbasket of America went empty, and this dust bowl settled over the land. And Tom Jode and his family did what Abram did, left. Maybe you know something of a famine in the land of promise. You responded to God's call with faith. You obeyed. You've done the right thing before God, before others, as best as you can tell. And life's gotten harder, not better. The last 12 months, perhaps for you, have felt more like curses than blessings. Hmm. So should Abram have left? Right? That's a question that hangs over this passage. Should Abram have left? It's, it's, it's hard to say. Like so many other parts of this passage and so many of the very nitty-gritty details of the book of Genesis, we, we just don't know. The author doesn't comment on every instance say good, bad, 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 good, good, bad. Like it, we don't have that for everything at least. And I feel like the double repetition of the word famine makes it seem like it was understandable, if not acceptable, to leave. Now, there was a famine in the land, we read. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, what does it say, comma, for the famine was severe in the land. It's like the narrator's saying, like, I know you're an ass, so I'll just tell you, it was really bad. But maybe he should have stayed. Back in verse 7, God promised to give him the land. And then even above that, verses 2 and 3, God promised to bless Abram and protect him. Abram, God said to him, him who dishonors you, I will curse. Like, in other words, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put my special hand of blessing on you because you're mine. Yet Abram makes a plan to solve this problem of his. Sarai, let's go to Egypt. But his plan to solve one problem leads to another problem, which we'll see leads to another problem. And you'll probably, throughout the sermon, be able to hear this cultural problem of, you know, what a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. Look with me at the next few verses, 11 through 13. 
When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know that you're a beautiful, a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may, well, may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. Here we go, right? The narrator gives us the sense that all of this happened so sudden, like Sarah didn't have much choice. We read, when he was about to enter Egypt, it, it's like I have this picture of a husband and wife going out to dinner, it's a business dinner, and uh, they pull into the parking lot, the husband and wife, and they already see the couple they're going to meet over there, and the couple's waving at him, and so like, the guy puts, puts in park, parks the car, looks at his wife and says, when we get out there, I didn't lose my job last week. That doesn't come up. We need this sale or we'll lose our house. Turns off the engine, gets out, opens her car door, and they go. That's, that's what I feel like is happening here. doesn't sound like the wife had much choice. The famine led them to Egypt, which led them to Egyptians. Apparently, she's a very beautiful woman, and so this was their plan to deal with the fear. Perhaps you can relate. I mean, not the specifics, <laughs> probably. But perhaps you feel pinched financially, and so you've got to do whatever you have to do to not lose the job. Even if you mess something up, you can't tell anybody, especially the boss, because that will cause you to lose your job. And if you lose your job... Maybe your wife has diabetes or some other health challenge, and if you lose your job, then you lose your insurance, and then, then what, right? Whose fault is that? We start to fear, and we develop in our minds this sequence of events that will proceed inevitably, like the sequence of events that there's like these titanium links in a chain. This leads to this, which will lead to this. Therefore, I must do this, or then we'll be living in this dystopian apocalypse or something like that, right? That's what we feel. If I don't compromise in this way, then my boyfriend will leave me. And if he leaves me, then I'll never get married. Or if I don't give my brother, who's an addict, money, then he'll get upset, and that's not going to be good. Or if inflation is up 10%, which it has been almost regularly over the last few years, then how can we be generous with that? Like if we give money, then we'll have to pull our kids out of private school, then what? Or maybe you've heard some say, look, our world is so bad and so feisty and so antagonistic to Christianity that if Christians don't fight back with the same anger and snark, then we'll just get walked over and our schools will be overrun, then what? We can't practice Beatitudes like meekness because, let's be real about this, they just don't work. And speaking of what doesn't work, how about the Sabbath? If I don't work on Sabbath, how's God God expect me to get everything done? You see what fear can do? Note again what Abram says in verses 11 and 12. I know, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Abram speaks as though his great plan will alter destiny. 
Like that's the language he's using here. This will lead to this, which will lead to this. Therefore, I must do this lest they kill me. And if I die, what becomes of God's plan? Therefore, we need a new plan. Well, how does this plan work out? Keep going, verses 14 to 16. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Well, it's got more wealth, right? We see that. Make a few brief comments here. Like, one on the camels. <laughs> it's the last item in the list. Now, there are scholars who actually over time have doubted the truthfulness of this passage because they, they look at the Egyptian record and, say, like, record and say, like, there weren't camels in Egypt at that time. I know we all, or I picture camels in Egypt like that. They go together, like the Sphinx and the pyramids. They were always thus, right? But like those who have studied this would say that, no, camels came later, but now that others, so, I mean, I poured over the, this giant stack of books all week, and it would seem that now that they've done more research, they say, no, no, camels were in Egypt at this time, but just barely. Which is to say that to be given camels is to be given the latest in new tech. That sounds weird. I didn't even know you'd laugh there. I was, like, often I anticipate the laugh. Like, I it's all right. Uh, I guess that is funny, camels as new tech, like that's kind of, uh, look, they hold up so much water. Um, anyway, <laughs> but, but, but he's given a team of employees, a house, four-car garage, and in that garage he's got a Maserati, a BMW, and a Tesla, right, self-driving car, new tech. So this plan is working, No. This is the blessing of the Lord, no? We're not so sure. This whole brother-sister plan seemed better in his head, I think. In fact, it had worked well before. That's a detail I haven't told you yet. In fact, the authors in Genesis haven't told us that, that yet. We read later in Genesis 20 that Sarai was actually related to Abram, so there's kind of a, not full lie, but like half lie maybe? Also, the two of them did this charade in other towns. You can look it up later or flip there if you want, if you're so curious. Now, chapter 20, verse 13, that he says, like, whenever we go through these towns, once we left our father's house, this is the thing we'll do. You pretend to be my sister. I'll be your brother. So, so this is their go-to plan. And so, maybe Abram's plan had worked then, and, and maybe it's working now. I mean, he never actually... Back then, he was at least, he was never actually going to give her away. In ancient times, you had to butter up the father-in-law if you wanted to marry his daughter, so you're going to give him gifts. And now, if the father-in-law, future father-in-law is not in the picture, then, then what do you have? You have a brother. And so you've got to butter up the brother. And so Abram's that brother, and, and so in this plan, they can live in the same house, secretly as husband and wife, but outwardly facing brother and sister, so it's like no one really knows. And he can welcome the potential suitors, but then he's never really going to give his sister, wife away. He had a plan. But, oops, he didn't account for something. Famine leads to Egypt, which leads to Egyptians, which leads to the princes of Pharaoh, which leads to Pharaoh. 
You don't stiff arm Pharaoh. Every sin has a Pharaoh. You, you, you don't win. Abram can't protect her anymore. He's plunged his wife underwater into the arms of another man to keep himself from drowning. And the passage cuts deep because it, it, it cuts at the heart of what it means to be a godly man. Listen to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 17. Just, just listen to this. Proverbs 20, 17 says this. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Again, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Uh, you, you can imagine a modern man standing in his beautiful yard, looking at his four-car garage and just, just shaking his head. I, I got all the toys Garage full of toys, he says, but my wife hates me. My children despise me. I have no friends, no church, no religion, no God, no, no joy, no salvation. The last verse of that Harry Chapin song I mentioned earlier, here, here's how the last verse goes. I've long since retired. My son moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. See, the new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu. Sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And the father's voice takes back over and he says, as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. Fear causes deception to just ricochet through the pages of Genesis. Down this family tree. Three times we read of a husband telling his wife to pretend to be a sister. Two times it was Abram, once it was Abram's son Isaac, Genesis 12, 20, and 26. Rebecca and Jacob deceive Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Laban, that's Genesis 27, Laban deceives Jacob about marrying Leah before Rachel, that's Genesis 29. Rachel deceives Laban, that's Genesis 31. Simon and Levi deceive the men of Shechem, that's Genesis 34. Jacob's 11 sons deceive Jacob about the death of his favorite son, Joseph, Genesis 37. Certainly, certainly, Abram raises children who love the Lord. They really do. He, he leaves this legacy of faith in the Lord that is in contradiction to this family line of, of pagan moon worshipers. He's, he's called out of that. His children are growing up out of that in wonderful, beautiful ways, but he also doesn't. He's this mixed bag. Abram could have looked, could he have looked into the future, he would have said, my boy was just like me. Just as inevitable as this plan was to fix things, so now it seems just as inevitable that this plan will end badly. What will happen to Sarai? What will happen to him? I mean, many years later, there's another king named David, and he kills a man's husband to get his wife. Kings do these sorts of things. What will this Egyptian king do now? Will he kill Abram? Who could possibly prevent 
Abram's death. Abram can't prevent it anymore. It's way out of his hands. Maybe you're drowning in problems that just feel too deep. And you wonder, is this going to end bad? Thankfully, thankfully, God intervenes for Abram. Just as we sang earlier, oh, but God. He intervenes for Abram. He intervenes for Sarai. This spiral of fear and human planning that led to more fear and human planning, even scheming, which led to more fear, got interrupted by God. While Abram was still powerless against Pharaoh, while he didn't know what to do or how to make it right, God demonstrated his love. God sends plagues upon Pharaoh. Does it sound familiar? Look with me at verses 17 to 20. Like so many of the details in this passage, this would have just popped off the page to the original audience, this Exodus community. Verses 17 through 20 go like this. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. He came to her defense. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. How did Pharaoh figure it out? How did he figure it out? We presume he talked with Sarah. Eventually, she gives it up. Perhaps the plagues afflicted him and the rest of the household in sensitive areas related to their sin, so that that helped them figure it out. Or perhaps Sarah was not afflicted with the plagues. So, like you have, like everybody afflicted with plagues, but not Sarah. And Pharaoh's like, mm, something's up. That happened in the Exodus. Maybe Sarah didn't get boils or whatever. We don't know, but we know that Pharaoh, when he does find out, he rebukes Abram. In some ways, we might say that the moral voice of God in this passage is put on the lips of Pharaoh, which is strange. To have the secular world rebuking believers for their sin, except this thing has happened all too often in the last decade in the reports of abuse in churches. But don't miss the important thing. Don't miss the important thing. Don't miss that God spares Abram's life. Fear made Abram do these erratic, crazy, sinful, like desperate things, but it wasn't Abram's plan and efforts that broke the unbreakable chain. God broke the unbreakable chain. And when they leave Egypt, they leave Egypt together. Scarred together, husband, wife, after all that they went through, for better and worse, and now for better again, God has kept their marriage alive because he can. He can do that. He does that. I do wonder what the camel ride back was like. <laughs> Two days go by in silence, and Sarah eventually looks to Abram's like, so we're going to talk about this? Uh, I don't know, you have to come back next week. David picks up the story where this left off, and I think there are clues in the passage that tell us 
how and when their heart warms. Let's move to the close. I should be clear by now, should be clear by now, if it wasn't before, that the Bible is not a book of heroes, as we often understand it to be, but the book of one hero, namely God. Too often we come to church thinking every other person and every other family has it all together. It can seem like no marriages here have ever been rocked by adultery. No one here has ever lost their job through negligence or moral failure. No one here has ever struggled with same-sex attraction. No one here has an uncle they won't talk about. No one here has never lost a loved one through suicide. No parent here has ever heard their children say, I hate you. Not here. But that's not true. Last week's sermon, I said that it was the promises at the beginning of chapter 12 that were to carry Abram along in humble confidence. God told Abram that he would bless him and protect him. And it's when Abram forgets this that he loses his way. If you know that Jesus Christ died for you, he took your sins on the cross, died for you, you believe that he rose again, that he has made you a child of God by faith, then you also have received many, many promises. You don't have to fear the same fears the world fears. Christians are not spiritual orphans. Listen to these words of promise. I'm just going to read them long. This comes from Matthew 6. This is 25 through 33. These are Jesus' words to his disciples. And it's Jesus' word to you if you are in Christ. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you that Solomon, even Solomon in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he not clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? You see, that's the issue, faith. Fear continues. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, says Jesus over you. When Abram forgot who he was and what God had promised him, he lost his way. When we forget God's promises, we lose our way. 
don't we? There's an old Kevin Costner movie version of Robin Hood. If you've seen it, it's dated. This is how contemporary I am here. I'm going to quote movies from 30 years ago, probably. But in it, there's this scene where Robin Hood first meets Little John, and there's this running stream of water, and they, they have this, this, like, I guess they're bow staff battle. They're going to fight. And, 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 and they fight each other, and, and uh, Robin Hood eventually gets the best of Little John. And, and there's this one point like, where Robin Hood's holding Little John in, down in the stream of water, and his legs are up, and Little John's gasping for air, and he says, Do you yield? Do you yield? Right? And eventually he does. He says, Yes. And Robin Hood yells against, like, Adam, stand up. And he's like, What? And he's like, Stand up. And like, Little John stands up in the water, and like, the water is just to his waist. He's not going to drown. The ground is right there all the time. For Abram, at the end of this story, he realizes that God's promises, they were right there all the time. And even when Abram wasn't faithful, God was faithful. And that's the message of Genesis. Like, I, I, I know there's parts that we're going to tease out, like, oh, Abram was doing good here. There's some parts, though, a lot of parts were like, ugh. The message of the Bible is God is faithful. He is able. And that's good news. It's good news that there's no fear too big for a promise of God to conquer. We can stand in God's love without fear because he holds tomorrow. I don't know what you drew on your picture. Whether you actually drew the picture, it's just like up here in your head or in your heart. You feel it, your elevated blood pressure. I, I don't know what makes you afraid, but that fear is not too big for God. When the storm rages or the famine comes, we have only to be still and know that God is God because he is and will be and forever will be. Listen, invite the music team to come up and lead us in some songs and Let's pause and just pray a little bit longer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you help us to linger here a bit? Just to linger in your presence. To do what the Apostle Peter told us to do to cast all our anxiety upon you, knowing that you care for us. Lord, this morning, would you break chains for your good, or for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen.